Have you ever wondered what international relations is? Do you want to gain significant insights into daily world developments that go beyond mere news headlines and how these developments might affect your daily life? Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to In Relation To, a podcast presented to you by the International Relations Review at Boston University. I'm Maria, your host. I'm Margarita, your other host. If you're interested in anything related to international affairs and politics, then you should definitely stay tuned to the future bi-weekly episodes of In Relation To. We'll be talking about how international relations relates to your life and the lives around you. We'll bring you news from around the world, in-depth analysis of political, economic and cultural trends, and prominent guest speakers from the international affairs community. Coming up on future episodes, we will explore the field of IR and show how it connects to your lives in a multitude of ways. In Relation To will not just stop at informing our listeners. We aim to inspire action, provide the tools for introspection, and help you analyze the world in a new light. Expect to hear from a range of leading professionals and unique perspectives, from experts in the field to other passionate students. In Relation To hopes to embody the words of Mahatma Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. Since knowledge leads to change by keeping us all inquisitive, we hope to help you personify the change you want to see. We also aspire to support change and reform by informing you on the many professional opportunities and pathways in the field of international affairs. And that is our sneak peek of what In Relation To is. Come hang out with us, learn about the different paths of IR and how we can be the change we envision for the world. Till next time, stay inquisitive. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Uh, our guest today is Migena Satyal, and she's a junior at BU studying international relations and also a senior editor for the International Relations Review. So, um, Migena, welcome. Hello. So, Migena is doing um, her thesis on EU migration policies, and thus today she's our guest because that's precisely what we're going to be talking about, migration in Europe and beyond. So, Migena, would you want to um, start by explaining to us how you um, chose migration as your uh, thesis topic? Yeah. So the first time I was really exposed to the problems regarding migration and the concept of migration in general was in 2015. Um, I'm sure a lot of uh, IR people know this, but that was when the EU migration crisis was occurring. And I was 13 years old and I was watching the news. I was watching CNN with my dad and there was a viral image of a three-year-old Syrian boy. His name was Alan Kurdi, who had drowned and was found in Bodrum, Turkey. And he was trying to get to Greece to escape the fighting between the Islamic State insurgents and the Kurdish forces in Syria. And this became really, the symbol became an image of the refugee or migrant crisis in Europe. And it just really stuck out to me because... You know, if you look at this image, it's very, it's very heartbreaking. It's a very little boy. And he was just found by random, you know, authorities, like on the beach, you know, so that that image always kind of stayed with me. And when I started studying international relations, this concept of migration came up again. And so did this image in a couple of my classes. So uh, you know, I, I was thinking about what to do my thesis about. And I'm like, this is something I'm passionate about. It's something that's you know, I have been aware about since I was very young. So it's just something that, you know, I decided to do because, you know, it's it's like it's stuck with me for so long. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity and for our listeners that are also um, international relations major, have you like taken a course that is very interesting and helped you like, 
you know, develop mm-hmm. their interest. Yeah, so there are two courses I've taken. Um, one is IR250. It's International Europe and International Relations. It was taught by Professor Berger. And there's a, a course I'm taking right now with Professor Shilda. It's called Non-State Actors. And uh, it's IR333. And we talk about, um, in terms of migration, we talk about how private enterprises are also kind of getting involved in this migration issue and how they're also helping institutions like the EU create policies regarding it. So it's a really interesting class. And for any IR majors out there, I really recommend taking them. Oh, wow, that sounds interesting. Any key takeaways on that subject? Um, a lot, but two of the key takeaways have obviously for me been regarding this, uh, like the migration issues and how, you know, states, like what det- what are the determinants for states handling like handling crisis like these so yeah but there are so many takeaways it's hard to pick a specific one mm-hmm. yeah understandable um i remember that when we were talking about your thesis um together you mentioned um the spain and morocco crisis mm-hmm. like do you want to explain yeah mm-hmm. so there is a border fence in uh spain in the city of melia and it borders uh you know it's It's the Moroccan-Spain border, and one of the ways that North African migrants try to get into uh, to Spain is by jumping this fence. And hundreds to thousands of migrants, they prepare to jump the fence each day. They, you know, sleep near the, the fence, and they attempt to kind of storm the fence in large numbers to overwhelm the police. And it's actually really heartbreaking because... The Moroccan police and the the Spanish police and you know the the border control authorities have actually raided the uh, the migrant camps. They have burned and destroyed like people's belongings. You know, there is instances of uh, sexual violence and you know just violence in general towards the migrants. And this is all to deter them from getting to Spain. And what's interesting is that per the European Union policy, once the migrants reach the Spanish soil, they are entitled or they have the right to like a translator and also legal assistance and turning them over to the Moroccan authorities, which is what happens a lot of the times, is actually not legal. But when some migrants have successfully arrived to Spain, they get handed over to the Moroccan police without... um, And they're deprived of their right to, you know, legal assistance or language translators. And it's 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 just, you know, like I said, heartbreaking because these people are trying to come for they're, you know, escaping whatever it may be, like violence, human rights abuses, political instability, or they just want more opportunities. So it's for me, it's really sad to see people who just want a better life for themselves being treated this way because there have also been so many instances of like hundreds of people, you know, dying at the borders to this day. So, yeah, um, a lot of the migrants also face this thing. Called, it's quoted like rejections at the border. And it's a term that Spanish government uses for um, to refer to retur- uh, to migrants returning. But um, this really means that this term really just means that they were returned back to Morocco or back to wherever without being granted their right to um, a translator and stuff like that. And this practice actually violates EU and international law, but it's it's being done and no one is stopping it. 
Right. And that's even more staggering if we, um, I, I know I read somewhere that something crazy like 70% of Spain is actually uninhabited. So there is the space to like take in those migrants and they're just not doing it. Um, and uh, like walls are uh, constantly being built. So in Greece, for example, right now, um, um, a fence is being built between Turkey and Greece mm -hmm. uh, in a, a region called Evros. And of course, we all know what is going on yeah. in the US. Yeah. I think this concept of like building a fence or a wall is really interesting because like what what does it really symbolize? You know what I mean? Like it's like Morocco used to be like a colonial holding of Spain and it's like and now they're trying to come into Spain. So it's like what does what does it symbolize? And I mean the same thing like goes in the the United States, a lot of our like workforce is built up by by immigrants and migrants who come to these uh, the, our country to look for better opportunities. And, you know, my parents are also immigrants. They got jobs here and, you know, they were like, we want to move to the States and have our kids become educated there. So when you are setting up this physical barrier against people who are trying to come into the country, like, what is it really symbolizing? You know, I think that's that's we definitely need to talk about that for sure. Yeah, that's that's very true. And uh, on that topic, it's also um, like even those that do get accepted, like the small number that is, it's like it's a population that is not really reflective of all of those people that um, need help. So, for example, in Greece, there's a specific visa called golden visa. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a concept in other regions. Um, I'm, I'm assuming because everyone in here is nodding their heads that it is. But so basically a golden visa is um, when you can enter a country and get a visa uh, if, you can, if you can invest a certain amount of money in the country by buying mm -hmm. an asset, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so people who have the money to do that will do that, but people who don't cannot enter and get a visa. Exactly. And like, a lot of these people, especially in, you know, the Spain-Morocco border or whatever, they're not, they don't have the resources to, you know, buy multi-million dollar like assets in the United States just for citizenship. It's like they're, they need to be here just for like the fundamental right to be like able to have a job or just able to like live safely. So, and there's just so much denying of that, even in the United States and even in Europe, which is honestly just really sad to see. Yeah, that's true. Um, talking about Europe, um, you also mentioned that some of your research concerns um, the situation in France, um, mm -hmm. and you're looking into that. So what have you found up to now? So this was a research um, project that I carried out in a class, and I look at the, the French political party called the National Front. It's this very problematic party, to say the least, and it was it was under the leadership of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was this very xenophobic, racist, you know, anti-Semitic guy. And he basically argued that um, he was anti-immigration because he argued that the entrance of migrants into France diluted French identity and culture. And so this became the forefront of his political campaign. Um, I believe it was the 70s or the 80s, but it was it was kind of early on. And they proposed this. Um, so, you know, people caught on to his very problematic beliefs very fast. So what happened was that instead of creating a rhetoric around immigrants diluting French culture or, you know, just 
straight up, honestly, just being racist, they created this idea of uh, national preference in terms of the distribution of public and welfare resources. So xenophobic sentiments became embedded in economic or public services. So this is actually very common in the U.S. as well. It's like, oh, if, you know, all these migrants are coming into the country, we, we're going to have to share our public resources or welfare resources with them, and we don't want to do that. And so there's people try to create this sort of economic reason behind why they are opposed to migrants coming in. So, so then he had a daughter, Maureen Le Pen, who later, she actually won a like uh, went up against Macron, I think, um, in the 2015 elections. But her rhetoric shifted for the party from we don't want immigrants here to uh, immigrants can't adapt to French society because of where they come from. So then it again shifted back to like the preservation of French culture and identity. And, um, you know, Paris is going to turn into, you know, like this, I don't know, like it's going to be filled with like these migrants who can't fit into our culture. And she's also a very problematic person. I mean, she says some very anti like um, what's it called, like Islamophobic things. And she's just not good. But, you know, she did gain popularity in 2015 to a certain extent. And she actually made it through the second round of elections against Macron, which was honestly just really concerning and you think how does someone who has those like beliefs why were they able to get to the point where they got but yeah I mean my research with France specifically was like the rhetoric around immigration and I've noticed that like there's like oh we don't want them here because they can't fit in oh we don't want them here because uh, our economy can't handle it we don't want them here because of population whatever and yeah, so that was my research for that. Yeah, well, that's super interesting because I actually had um, a conversation with a family member mm-hmm. a couple of nights ago. And I'm um, coming from Greece where, you know, it's a country where a lot of migrants have come in and people, mm-hmm. there are generally people that um, are very hostile towards the idea of taking more in. Yeah. And, you know, especially now that um, COVID has induced this kind of um, economic crisis again. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, the point that they were raising to me was that even if countries do accept more migrants, um, they will never stop coming in and there will always be more migrants Mm -hmm. until a threshold is again reached in the future where no more can come in. So even they were arguing that even if more come now, there's this has to stop eventually. There has to be a line. And I was wondering what you think about that. Um, It was a point I had trouble refuting, even even though it seems wrong to suggest it. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, yeah, it's a very, like, I feel like that's an entire, like, thesis paper. Like, it's it's very hard to answer. But in terms of they're going to keep on coming until, I mean, I honestly don't know. It's a very hard point to refute, but, like... I don't agree with it, but I, I definitely right. like, can't come up with an answer on the spot. So I'm going to have to think about that, actually. So, yeah, I mean, what um, I ended up like responding to that was, OK, yes, it's sur- surely migration is a difficult you know, question. And mm-hmm. if it had an easy political solution, it would be solved. But um, like by blaming the whole situation of not taking migrants in, 
due to the problem of population, mm-hmm. it seems like this is hiding, you know, other crucial problems to why people don't want migrants in. Mm-hmm. So as you said, like, they feel like migrants do not fit into the communities. Mm-hmm. And even with France, I remember there was this whole um, debate with how they wanted to ban people from wearing burkas. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because they actually that issue, I, I wrote a little bit about that as well. It was because they claim that it was repressive to women, like having to wear burkas. And, you know, it's, I think in contemporary society, at least, women can choose if they, it's it's become a, a symbol of like cultural expression. Like it's, I think a lot of people think that it's repressive and may, like, may, sure, maybe in some cases it is, but at the same time, it's it's a cultural thing. So by trying to actually strip women of like being able to express their culture like you know giving them the choice to wear the burqas or not you're gonna have to wonder what like what what is the intention of doing that is it actually because do you think it's repressive to women or is it because you know french society like they don't wear burqas like they're it's not they don't they don't have a big islamic like population but the migrants who come into france like from algeria or from wherever like they do wear burqas it's like a it's like a cultural thing for them so you have to wonder like what's the what's the intention behind banning that too right yeah um so migration also in itself is a is an umbrella term and it refers to the general movement of people from one residence to another and the un migration agency refers to a migrant as uh, someone who's moving away from place A to place B within their own country or like across national borders. And of course, migration is not a new phenomenon. The Throughout like human history, the movement of people from one place to another has been very prevalent. And this has been for many reasons, like escaping persecution, violence, or, you know, just new opportunities, whatever it may be. And so from an IR perspective, like what's interesting to note is how the rise of nation states and the concept of sovereign statehood has shaped how we think about migration. So, you know, we learned this in intro to IR, but the Westphalian system asserts that states should be sovereign. They can make their own decisions, they have their own authority, and they can govern themselves. But uh, what really like constitutes a state is like the fact that they have national borders and the idea that they have sovereignty over what happens within these borders. And so this in turn affects migration because it determines how migration is handled and because states have the right to determine who, especially non-citizens or migrants or irregular immigrants who can enter the country. And this makes sense, right, from like like objectively, yeah, it's the state, they can make decisions. Um, like that's just the norm that's been in place. But we also have to think about like what are the factors that states take into account when they're determining who can and can't under this enter the state and like you know we we just talked about this it can range from any sort of like like racist or xenophobic rhetoric to like things that we that come that seem like fundamental like concerns like population and stuff like that so you know there there are rules like uh, there are international laws like like from the UN and stuff about people having the right to move like freely and all of that but that's like not really you know it's there like you know that's great that it's there but it's not exactly practice so we I, 
I think just from like a wider like IR perspective, it's important to know like what is driving these states to make their decisions about like you know how much how migration occurs. Right. Um. And I mean, I just want to mention this because um, I joined this really um amazing program over spring break, which is called Border Studies Program. Mm -hmm. And so basically there we went uh, to the the border uh, between the U.S. and Mexico, mm -hmm. and we stayed in Texas. And there uh, we were able to hear from some professionals. Mm -hmm. And basically one of them, um, what um, what she said was, you know, you know how Biden is, of course, like a president that seems to be taking migration, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a more... Uh, meaningful way that Trump was, of course, mm -hmm. but at the same time, uh, so many things that he uh, he does, like he may be trying to adhere to the rules set by the UN on when he, you know, speaks. Mm -hmm. um, but what he's doing is very different from what he's saying, and that's not very obvious always. So one thing he mentioned that was really interesting is how it seems like the government is using. Um, family separation as a tactic mm -hmm. to deter people from trying to mm -hmm. cross to the United States. Mm -hmm. So we had the chance to actually observe one such case where a girl was separated from her family and this girl was um, obviously had um, a disability. She had Down syndrome. And despite that, she was still separated from her parents just because of staying some feet away from them at a time. Mm -hmm. And that was shocking to see um, to hear happening. And yeah, so it's basically the fact that, you know, some politicians may be adhering to those rules set by the UN and other agencies, but then they do this, uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff that really does not make any sense based on the yeah. rhetoric. And I mean, you know, it, it makes, again, like from the Westphalian system, like it makes sense, like states want to do their own thing like the u.s wants to do its own thing if um if you know the u.s was just constantly the same because you like the united nations for example like i'm sure there would be so much like backlash or you know whatever so yeah i mean it's really troubling but it's like and that's like the problem and that's like the big idea of like what we learn in international relations is like even if people are saying one thing and doing another like no one is really there to hold them accountable so and that's also troubling because like that's the biggest problem is like these institutions or people in power who have the the authority to deter to determine like the outcome of so many things like when they make decisions that are just you know like like what you said it's like who like who holds them accountable and that's really troubling to think about because like there is really like very small or even lack of accountability so, uh, like, having this discussion, I'm wondering, like, through your research, um, did you happen to um, come across any interesting, um, if not solutions, like, suggestions about small steps to take to this huge problem? I haven't yet. I'm still in the very, like, preliminary um, part of my research. So I honestly, I'm just thinking about it now. Like, my paper is kind of, like, a policy proposal paper so I will eventually have to recommend some policies but you know just doing the preliminary research I'm like is like it's it's difficult because I'm like is there even a policy like are there any policies that are very effective you know so I don't have it 
yet, but I, I will soon. That's like another podcast. We can discuss that. <laughs> okay, we'll have you back then for yeah. that part. During my research, what I found interesting was how Europe was so like receptive to um, Ukrainian refugees, but not that receptive uh, receptive to um, refugees like coming in from other parts of the world. So, you know, Europe was, I mean, when the Russia-Ukraine war started and there was like the influx of Ukrainian refugees, Europe did an amazing job like handling it and, you know, reintegrating them into um, European society again. But and they were escaping war, they were escaping persecution and but th- they had a very different response, like I said, again, in like the 2015 migrant crisis. It's like these were Syrian civi- or, you know, yeah, Syrian civilians trying to escape persecutions, trying to escape war. It was like families. It was little like babies. Why wasn't it, why wasn't there like that same reaction to them? You know, instead of hearing like, oh, you know, we accepted this amount of people and you know, we welcome like these refugees. The the response was just so like incredibly different. And, you know, and I just thought that was really sad because at the end of the day, like refugees are refugees, you know, that they're all like they all deserve like a place to live, a place to like have these like good opportunities. But yeah, it's just the, the response was honestly just shocking to me. And I'm sure you have like, like also noticed the differences in like the receptiveness. So like, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, definitely. I um I agree so much because I remember very vividly when, you know, um the Ukraine war first broke out. I don't know if you remember the whole thing with people um like doing the news mm-hmm. talking about how there's war in a European country. Yes, yes. And uh, I mean, there you can already see the divide mm-hmm. between like how they were going to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Welcomed. I yeah actually it's really interesting like it was they made it seem like it was just like impossible whereas when they talk about regions in other parts of the world like the Middle East or like even you know it's like they make it seem like it's like a norm there it's like people are right. too comfortable like talking about like I don't know another place like having these problems that like Russia, Ukraine is now having. And that's also like, it also really shows how that can also determine like their response to all the refugees coming. Right. Yeah. And like, it's also like, I I keep thinking about what the role of the media is in this whole thing. Because now, and a very interesting fact that I came across is that people in Greece, Mm -hmm. um, um, where I come from, um, when they... um, like there was this survey happening that were, was asking a couple of Greek people what their opinion is on migration. And there was also this belief that Turkey, you know, uh, where the many migrants come mm-hmm. in the, Europe from uh, through the East, Eastern Mediterranean mm-hmm. route, um, um, that they are a political, um, they're a political... Like a political tool. Weapon. Yes. Yeah. A political weapon uh, against the Greek, um, the Greek country from yeah. Turkey, and they're purposely f- they're purposefully sending all these migrants to uh, get the country in economic trouble mm-hmm. or whatever. And I don't know if there's a grain to truth uh, mm-hmm. to that because, of course, there's a, r- a rivalry between 
Turkey's president, prime ministers and um, the Greek prime ministers, yeah. but still like people were very opposed to migration because of that mm-hmm. too. And of course, that has to be a media story because where else could they have gotten, you know, the idea from? Yeah, but. that's like so interesting that you mentioned how like the two precedents are kind of like rivals because maybe like that is the case where like, you know, that like rivalry is like fueling all of these like stories that are not true to like, maybe, I don't know if they're true, but these stories to come out. So it's just like also how much like, politics like has to do with how normal like regular people are affected it's also incredible to see I think right yeah Yeah. and like when you I don't know if this is um, a valid thing to say but like I was wondering when you deal with so many humanitarian issues like as a president or Mm -hmm. as a policymaker how desensitized do you become to people actually you know facing those challenges I mean That's like a really good question. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's food for thought in a way. I think like we don't even have to think about it from like a policymaker or like a politician point of view. We can just think about it on like individual, like human level as well. Like just as IR students, for Mm -hmm. example, like, like, like our classes are just filled with like, oh, like, like information about all these like terrible things around the world happening. You know, we talk about wars we talk about peace we talk about diplomacy and like and like we also talk about the ongoing issues and I feel like to a certain extent because we've been exposed to it so to it so much like not even just through class but also through like social media like every time like I scroll my like Instagram it's like a BBC or like a CNN like article about you know XYZ happening around the world and it's just it's very sad to see but it's also, yeah, you slowly become like desensitized to it. And I can't even imagine if I was working as a policymaker and I had to deal with like these on the ground issues, like how I would deal with it. I think it would just be like really like sad, you know? Yes. No, yeah, yeah that's that's true. And, um, you know, like public opinion is plays a really big role to how mm-hmm. migration is handled. So if public opinion is desensitized towards this issue, then how like... How can we solve it? My hope is that there is like a group of IR or policy students out there somewhere who, like us, who like want to work towards issues like these. And there is certainly, yeah, there is certainly people who like, who just are not very aware of like what's going on around the world. And like, they're like, oh, it like doesn't matter. This is not what I do. And I'm like, Okay, that's fine. But like, I'm really like banking on like some of my like IR friends or just the wider like IR or poli sci community at BU and like in like our state or like even in our country to like hopefully have passions like for these issues. And I think I think that's really important. No, right. right. I agree. Okay, this has been a great discussion. Do you have any last messages that you would like to let us our listeners with? Yeah, so this goes out to, I mean, not just the IR students or poli-sci students, but just a general audience to just stay informed about, like, what's going on, you know, whether it's migration issues or whatever, like, like, as an IR student, what I've picked up is, like, the world is so big and there's so many things going on and, like, you don't have to stay informed about all of it, but really, like, you know, the the big things that are going on, just, you know, just know about it, learn about it, be be an informed citizen. I would really stress that to everyone who is listening to this podcast. Yeah, that's a great parting message. 
thank you to everyone uh, for listening to us. And Miguel, thank you so much for being here. Yes, of course. We would like to thank our podcast director, Neha Tsusa, sound engineer, Rishvin Province, script editor, Isabella Nunez, associate producer, Andrew Severance, and editor-in-chief of the International Relations Review, Bridget Lang. We can't forget the Boston University International Affairs Organization. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at in relation to at buiaa.org. 